Sometimes as parents, I think we, uh, we do things that we regret. Sometimes we're a little bit ornery or mean with our kids. And sometimes we enjoy it. I don't know if you've ever done this as a, as a parent, or maybe if you're a child, you've had a parent do this with you, but you ever remember playing hide-and-go-seek at your house? I mean, not at church camp, and all, you know, I, I remember playing hide-and-go-seek at church, or hide-and-go-seek at someone else's house, but I mean at home. You know, you're bored, there's nothing to do, and so what happens? Kids come, they say, hey, let's play hide-and-seek, and you're thinking as a parent, dude, where is there to hide in this house? I mean... You know, there's, there's nowhere to hide. There's no good places. But isn't it amazing when you start to play hide-and-go-seek that you actually find spots that are just, like, ingenious? Like, my, like, like, I remember finding a spot behind a door one time, and I had to, like, suck it in for, like, 30 minutes. But, um, you know, you get behind the door, and they just go right by you, right, looking for you. And you're, and you're like, man, I, I, I got behind the door, and, and it wasn't even a great spot. But and you find these places, right? These nooks and these crannies. That's a great word, crannies. Um, these nooks and these crannies all around your house where you can hide and, and where, where people won't find you. And that's one thing to do it as an adult as you're, you know, doing that with the kids. But sometimes the kids hide and you're the finder, right? And it's really kind of fun to uh, have those moments with your kids because uh, when you're trying to find them, you could kind of mess with them a little bit. You know, maybe you see them, but you... You know, you pretend like, oh, I don't see you. And the kids get really excited because what's funny about hide-and-seek is the goal is that you hide and not get found, right? That's like the winners, the one that doesn't get found. But really, part of the excitement, especially for children, is that they want to get found, right? And so they giggle and they make little noises. And maybe you did one of these little things, you know, where you're hiding as a child and no one's finding you and you're kind of getting bored and you start doing things like, whoop, you know? It's like a beacon, you know? It's like, wait, do it again, do it again. You know, off the distance, whoop. You know, oh, hey, it's coming from over here, you know? And you have fun with that. I remember one time, and I'll protect the innocent here by not naming one of my daughters because they love when I do that. But uh, I was playing hide-and-go-seek with uh, one of my girls, and uh, they, you know, it seems like you always end up in a closet, right? I don't know for you if it's the coat closet, one of the bedroom closets, maybe it's this closet in the hallway that's outside of the bathroom, but... For some reason, you know, you, you think, I can get in a closet, I can close that door, and no one will find me. And that would be the least obvious place to look if I'm trying to play hide-and-go-seek. And so I had one of my daughters, and she was in the coat closet. And I remember thinking, oh, you know, as a dad, I'm going to be really fun and have fun with her, or actually more fun for me. And I went, and I wedged the door shut with my shoe. You know how you can do that? And, and so she kind of sees my shoe, and she's kind of giggling and stuff, and she tries to get out. Now she's trapped in the closet. And who is that out there? I don't say a word, you know. Dad, you know, who is his dad? Is that you? Or one of my sisters, is that you? And, and I'm not saying a word, and, and she thinks she's trapped in there. And then, uh, you know, sometimes if you're really mean, you, you, you do the, you know, the thing where you go wedge a chair there, and you just leave them in there for a few hours. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. No, that wasn't me. No. Um, but after a few minutes of, of having her fight and push on the door and stuff, she just kind of gives up. And after she's given up for about 30 seconds, I thought, you know what I'm going to do? Sayonara, you know, we're going to go back and play hide-and-go-seek or do whatever we're doing. And I remember it had been like 10 or 15 minutes, and I hadn't seen her. And I don't, I don't remember if we'd quit playing the game, but I just remember sitting on the couch thinking, I have not seen her in a few minutes. Where is she? And so I remember going back to the uh, coat closet and uh, sitting there and saying, you know, are you in there? And yeah. It's like a little bit of tears, and, and I was like, why, you know, why, why are you crying? And I opened the door, and I'm like, hey, you know, so why are you crying? Because I was trapped in here. 
I was like, oh, no, you weren't trapped in here. I was like, I've been gone for 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, no, you were holding the door. I said, well, I held it for like two minutes. And then it got me thinking. As we've been in this, this series, we started last week on amnesia. That sometimes we are deceived to not see things for what they really are. We get caught in the closet with someone barring the door, and they leave, and yet we still have in our minds, they barred the door. Sometimes we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we can feel literally from the very beginning of this new creation, there's so much excitement, there's so much joy in our lives because we see how God has delivered us and how God is in, is in this process of sanctification and changing us and molding us in who we want to be in Christ Jesus, and it's awesome. And then at some point we just forget. It's almost like we're in the closet and no one's barring the door and we can come out and live life to the fullest in him as much as possible, but we buy the deception. And sometimes, as we've talked about in this series last week, we just forget who we are. Amnesia is not forgetfulness. <laughs> I think probably to some extent everybody in this room is forgetful. It's, that's not what amnesia, it isn't, you know, leaving the groceries in the back of the car for a couple of weeks, you know, that kind of thing. Um, amnesia is actually forgetting who you are. You wake up one morning or you go through some traumatic circumstance, you, you don't know your name. You look in the mirror, you don't know your face, what you look like. You don't remember your mom and dad, you don't remember your spouse, you don't remember your job, your profession. In fact, you have no idea where you're at and how you got there. That is a medical condition and also a psychological condition called amnesia. My fear is, is that we suffer from amnesia today when it comes to our identity in Christ Jesus. When we identify ourselves, and we, we, we use the term freely when we meet people, you know, and talk to people sometimes like, oh, yeah, I'm so-and-so, and I'm a Christian. But we don't, really, we don't really look like a Christian. Sometimes we forget that we're a Christian, and, and, and Christ kind of gets put away. Uh, you know, our, our old life seems to... To sink, you know, to sneak its way back in, and, and, and those the newness of life it seems like it's kind of worn off a bit. And I just feel like it it's not necessarily always a doing thing. Sometimes it's just a being thing. We are not being who we are made to be in Christ Jesus. And that's the heart of this series as we look at different passages where it seems like biblical writers address people and say, Hey, don't forget who you are. Never lose sight of who you are. Don't wake up someday so deep in your lostness or your sinfulness that you have forgotten who you are in Christ Jesus. Today we're going to be looking at a passage from 1 Peter. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. It's in the back of the New Testament. If you want to follow along, we encourage, you know, if you brought your phone today, your tablet, your iPad, whatever it is, to follow along and engage the Word of God. You can download the Oakwood app. Just search Oakwood Enid in your app store. And if you uh, download the app, you can go to sermon notes and all of the scriptures and all the bullet points and all that will be on there for you. There's even a way for you to take notes. So uh, whatever you need to do today, whether it be with a Bible, with your phone, engage the word of God. Let him, let him speak to us this morning. 
Before we get into uh, the passage, I want to give you a little bit of background because I think when we understand the background of what we read in the Bible so many times, it just brings so much more fuller meaning. 1 Peter is actually written to exiles. These exiles are the Jews, the nation of Israel, Jewish people, that have now been dispersed because of persecution amongst all of these Roman provinces and all of these different cities and places. Uh, he actually starts the book, Peter does, he, he starts the, the, the letter here um, and addresses them as exiles and, and gives some of the places where they, they've been exiled to. And they feel like foreigners in a strange land. They are suffering persecution. They are scattered. And so they're in little clusters of Christians in all of these pagan places. And they find themselves harassed and they find themselves facing trials of many kinds. And if you're a, a historical buff, then this is actually at the time of the Roman Emperor Nero. And if you remember your studies on Nero, you remember that he was a persecutor of Christians and did some horrible, horrible things. It's to those people in those places who are trying to live out their identity in Christ Jesus that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the twelve, writes this letter to them and encourages them in many different ways, in many different terms which we're going to look at this morning. Don't forget who you are in Christ Jesus. Don't forget who you are as a Christ follower. Peter wants to make sure that they don't forget who they are. Let's read the text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1-10 through 10 says this. He says, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. As Christ followers, he's saying there, hey, you need to put off all of this stuff. Rid yourself of all these things. And even that word hypocrisy makes us cringe as representatives of Christ, doesn't it? The hypocrisy in our lives as we keep turning back to old sinful ways. He says, hey, rid yourselves of all of those things. That, all that malice and the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, the slander of every kind. And then he says this, like newborn babies. Picture a newborn baby. Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he goes on. He says, as you come to him, the living stone. Notice in the text there that that S is a capital letter S, referring to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ, the living stone... Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, Christians, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in the scripture it says, and he actually has two references here back to the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. It says, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people 
to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You see, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter, as he's talking to these persecuted, scattered exiles, these Christians that are, that, that are, are, are struggling, what does Peter give them? So they will remember their identity in Christ Jesus. The first thing from our passage this morning is this. He asked them that they would crave pursue and consume the holy word of God. That they would crave it, that they would pursue it, and that they would consume the holy word of God. He's talking about the Bible here. He's talking about the words of scripture. What is it, how is it worded here in our text? It's there in verse two. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. You know that if you have a newborn baby, what do they crave? You know, when they start crying, it's, it's really one of three things. They want to be swaddled or cuddled or rocked, right? The second thing is dirty diaper. The third thing is I'm hungry. And those babies crave that pure milk from mama that gives them all the nutrients they need and that satisfies them and that helps them what? Ultimately, if you feed the babies, they grow and they begin to mature and their bodies mature and their brains mature and he's using this this imagery to pay for Christians that were not intended to be little spiritual babies our whole life I mean at the beginning when you give your life to Jesus Christ and you, you taste the water your grave of baptism and and you come into God's family yes there there are going to be times where you are sitting there and you're like you know a baby I mean, that's 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 normal uh, some people just want to like, go into adulthood in their Christian faith so fast. It's okay. We can embrace the stage that we're in, right? But he says, don't stay there. Don't be one of those that don't grow up. And, and if we're honest, people, that, that bugs us. I mean, let's take the church and spiritual life out of this. We don't like people who don't grow up, right? I mean, 42-year-olds that act like 4-year-olds, and they got the emotional IQ of like a 6-year-old, and they don't get their way, they pout and cause trouble. I mean, you, you all know this. I mean, it's not like, oh, you know, man. He's saying spiritually here, don't stay in that state. And how do you do that? One of the ways is that you crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. That we would be maturing as Christ followers. Because that is his will for us in Christ Jesus. Is that we would be on this process and in this process of sanctification where we are actually growing and continue to grow up in Christ. And we do that through the word of God, craving the pure spiritual milk of the word. Look what it says in, in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, a prophet Jeremiah from the Old Testament. He says this about the word of God. He said, when your words came, I ate them. He consumed them. They were my joy and my heart's delight, for I bear your name, Lord God Almighty. That is how we should approach the Bible. That we eat the word of God, that we consume it, that his word in the Bible is our joy and our heart's delight. We delight in this word because we bear his name as Christ followers. 
In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it reminds us from the New Testament here what the, what the Word of God is. It says, For the Word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There's so many more verses in the Bible where the Scripture, the Holy Word, actually defines itself. It says in other places that it is a mirror that you peer into and you can see all the blemishes that you have because it's a mirror showing us and reflecting to us who we are, showing us the changes that we need to make in our life. It's oftentimes described as, as food or drink for the soul. Sometimes the Word of God comforts us, right? We're going through a hard time and we feel afflicted. And sometimes if you read the Word of God, it afflicts you because you become mighty comfortable in your sin. But he says here to these Christians, and remember, these are persecuted Christians, exiled and scattered, and feeling like the world has turned against them as Nero is even putting some of them to death. And he says, hey, remember who you are in Christ Jesus. And one of the ways you do that is by pursuing and understanding the Word of God. There's also other places in Scripture where the Bible talks about that it is didactic in, in nature, which means that it is, it is a Word of God that teaches us. It teaches, it corrects us, it trains us up in righteousness, it comforts us in our times of sorrow, and it brings us joy and delight. So disciples dwell in it daily. Remember who you are in Christ by knowing the Word of God. The second thing, Peter reminds them who they are, and he gives them eight specific terms. It's almost like he is naming these Christians. He's given them their identity. He uses eight specific terms, and this is found in verses 5, 9, and 10 of our text. The first term that Peter reminds them of who they are is, the first one he uses is, he calls them living stones. Now notice uh, right there before it talks about that, that Jesus is the living stone, singular, and it's a capital S. And then he turns it and he says, hey, hey, he is the living stone. He's the cornerstone. He's the foundation of your life. But you, like living stones. And then he goes on to the next descriptor there and he calls us a spiritual house. You, like living stones, are being built brick by brick and stone by stone into a spiritual house house and your spiritual house has to have a good foundation because of the weightiness of all that rock and you build that on the foundation of Christ Jesus in your life you're building being built into a spiritual house Peter uses this this building into a spiritual house imagery but if you think about uh, other parts of the New Testament when the Apostle Paul writes so many of the epistles he oftentimes refers to it not as a spiritual house but as a spiritual body and he says, the church, the bride of Christ, is a spiritual body. And when we come together, every supporting ligament, every part of the body, the toes and the elbows and the knees and the brains and the ears and the eyes, and all the different parts come together. It's in the spirit of that same imagery about the body for Paul is what Peter is saying here is being built into a spiritual house. He's just using a different image for it. And then he goes on. He says, you're a living stone, you're a spiritual house. And then he goes into this whole thing. That, this one's the deep end of the ocean here. You are a holy priesthood. A holy priesthood. Holy means set apart. Priesthood, well, what, what does that mean exactly? 
You remember the priesthood. I'm going to try to get, do this as fast as I can this morning. But you remember the priesthood from the Old Testament. The priesthood was a special calling and a special group of all the tribes of Israel that were set apart. And these priests had a special duty, and they were the ones, they were like the mediators between you and God, if you were an Israelite. So they were the ones that were offering sacrifices on your behalf for your sin. And you, you know, because you understand the animal sacrifices from the Old Testament. And so these, these priests were the ones that were, that were petitioning God on your behalf for the forgiveness of your sins. And they would take maybe a goat or, or maybe some kind of a bird. But oftentimes it was a perfect, um, unblemished, firstborn lamb representing the purity of God. And they would sacrifice that animal on your behalf. Now, you weren't allowed to do that yourself. The priests were the only ones that could do that. And if you remember, we actually talked about this a few weeks ago in the Christmas series when we were talking about Zechariah. There were, there were certain days and certain times of the year and during, during certain festivals and feasts where those priests were called into the temple. You can go in the temple, but the priests were the only ones that could go in the temple. And then they were sometimes called into a special part of the temple that no one could go in there. In fact, the scripture records that many times they were only in there one time a year. And they would get to go into the Holy of Holies and burn incense on this altar. The holiest place on earth at that time. And only the priests could do that. So for now, to those people that understand all the sacrifices and all the Old Testament and, and what does it mean to be a holy priesthood, he now says, you exiles, scattered, Christ followers, Christians, you are a holy priesthood. Just had to blow their minds. But the fact was this. If we read the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, it says, Jesus Christ, when he came into the world, he became our high priest. He is the mediator between us and God. And now... Because of his blood and him being the final and the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins, we now go directly to the throne of grace with confidence. We can actually approach God and pray to God and, and, and go to God ourselves because Jesus is our high priest. And now we are a holy priesthood. Now, do you understand now why oh, this was a big deal for them to identify as priests when their whole life they've been shown this certain way of God's law in the Old Testament it was a high and holy calling but look how he describes it there in verse 5 he says you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house he says this to be a holy priesthood and what do they offer it says offering animal sacrifices no what does it say offering what spiritual sacrifices that this new priesthood this holy priesthood that the jews are going to live out now we're not god says i'm not interested in animals anymore i have my holy son die for you no now you're going to offer spiritual sacrifices and so many may ask what does that mean i was reminded of romans chapter 12 verse 1 where the apostle paul is talking about this and he says therefore i urge you brothers and sisters in christ in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your whole self, as a living sacrifice, that you would be holy and that you would be pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Some translations say this is your spiritual act of worship, is that you would be a living sacrifice, living stones made into a holy priesthood. 
He goes on and describes them in another term. He says, you are a chosen people. That God has a special duty for us as Christians. That we are to be what? Light in the darkness. You remember what it says, what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5? Remember that a city on a hill cannot be hidden? He says, don't put a lamp on a stand and hide it under a bush. Put it on its stand so it gives light to everyone in the house. And he says, in that same way, you let your light, your life, shine before men so that they may see what? Your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Isn't it amazing that the way that you live might actually turn someone to Christ or turn them away? But you're chosen to a special office and a special duty as the people of God. It's part of our identity. It's not just what we do. It's who we are. He says, you're a chosen people. Then he goes on and he, he brings out the priesthood again. This time he calls them a royal priesthood. This sense of regality with it. And that is our reality is that we are this holy and royal, honored priesthood. He goes on and then calls them a holy nation. A holy nation. The nation of Israel is now considered holy and set apart and different. And then I love this term that he uses next. He calls them God's special possession. I mean, isn't that awesome? I mean, as a Christian, wasn't that kind of like the moment you gave your life to Jesus Christ? Maybe it was the moment that you, you came out of that watery grave of baptism, and in that moment, you're like, I feel special. <laughs> Jesus died for me. I have now put him on through this watery grave of baptism. It says in the scripture that my sins are washed away. It says in the, in the scripture that I'm this new creation. That the old is gone. Who I was is gone. It's dead and buried there in the water. New life has come. You're God's special possession. I wonder if those people needed to hear that at that time and be reminded of who they are. And I love how he ends it there. Right there in, in verse 10, he says that you are the people of God. You're God people. The people of God with a capital G. That is who we are. That is not what we do. That is who we are. That is our identity. When we deed our life and our soul over to Jesus Christ, we are called the people of God. And then Peter gives them this, number three this morning. We need to remind ourselves of this. We are a spiritual house. Remember the living stones connotation. We are a spiritual house. We are a community built by God to bring him glory and to represent him to the world. So really there's two parts of this being his body of believers and being his church. Is that we are called by God through this Christian community, through this fellowship of believers to bring him glory. That people would look at his church and look at his followers and look at Christians and look at people and say, wow, God does amazing work. Some of these people were rotten and they're awesome now. How is this possible? We are built for his glory, but we also represent him to the world. We're also Christ's representatives. We are his ambassadors. You see, 
What he's referencing here is Christ is the foundation. He's the foundation of our lives. He's the foundation of our own spiritual families and households. He's the foundation of the church. And we are his children. We are his servants. And we are called by God to live our lives in such a way that we would represent him as living stones being built into this spiritual house. On him, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. The foundation. He's the main thing. He's the foundation of it all. We are called to build our lives on Christ and in Christ. Now, I don't know about you. You hear a term like, you are living stones. You are rocks. You know, we used to use that term as like bad when you were a kid. You know, man, he's dumb as a rock. You know, it's like, so I understand as Christians, sometimes you're like, man, that, that is just not super exciting for me. But I'm going to share something with you in a minute that might might bring a whole new meaning to you. But before that, I want to read the very first verse I read when we started this series last week. It's really a foundational verse for our understanding of who we are in Christ Jesus, and it's found in Galatians 2.20. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes himself. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. Not living for myself anymore. I've deeded my life and my heart over to him. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in and through me. That's totally different than the way you lived before Jesus. And he says, he says, the life I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Who you are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes I think we forget. We forget who we are. So I, I hear this happen in the church lobby sometimes. You go to meet people, right? I like to think of our church family as a friendly church, and, and our family wants to grow. We, we want people to be a part. A lot of times in the lobby when you meet someone and you say, oh, hey, I'm, I'm Henry. And then what do you say? Hi, I'm Henry, and I'm an electrical engineer. What did you just learn about Henry? You learn where Henry goes to work. You learn the task that he does 40 hours a week, maybe a few more hours a week, from 8 to 5, that Henry is an electrical engineer. But is, is that really who he is? Like he is an electrical engineer? Or is he a human? And if he's accepted Christ as Savior, saved by grace. A human saved by grace. A Christian, a Christ follower. You see, that's not something that you do. That's who you are. You are not an electrical engineer. You are not a banker. You're not a CEO. You're not a teller. That doesn't define who you are. Those are things that you do. Christianity and this faith is not something that we do. It's identity, folks. It's who you are. When you get up in the morning, can you imagine looking in the mirror and going, who is that? And I feel like sometimes that's what so many Christians do. And then we get called in the text here, you're rocks, living rocks, you're living stones. And you're, I, I know for some of you that is not exciting, but let me share a little story with you. In the Old Testament, when the people of Israel would have big things and big events happen, you can read it for yourself in the Old Testament. Many times when God did something big somewhere, they would do this thing. The, the tribes of Israel would come, they'd assemble, and they would get all the guys together, and they would get these huge rocks 
I mean, sometimes eight, 10, 12, I mean, thousands of pounds, and they would stand them up on their side. So visually, I want you to think of like Stonehenge, okay? You remember Stonehenge, what that looks like? Yeah, that was originated by the Israelites. They would stack these rocks up on end. And when people would walk by, they'd be like, that's a weird bunch of rocks. Man, someone stood those up. That took some work. And it was to remind people, oh, look, I want you to remember what God did here. Remember here how he delivered us from the hands of the Philistines. They were about to kill us. They, they had Goliath come out, you know. But all these different events, all these different stories, you read them in the Old Testament, and there are several occasions where it says, hey, this happened, this happened, this happened. And before they left that location, they would stand up these stones, these rocks. Many times they would put them by well-traveled places. There are several locations along this this trade path from that era called the King's Highway. And everyone traveled on the King's Highway. It was like taking the interstate or taking the turnpike in that, in that day. And they would stand them up in places like that. So when people drove by the King's Highway, they'd be like, man, I remember. Do you remember what God did here? Do you remember that story? Now fast forward to Peter here. Peter's a Jew. He's got Jewish background. He's writing to Jews going through persecution I wonder if this is what tripped in their mind when he said to them you're living stones not just being built into a spiritual household but you are like living stones living monuments living testimonies to remember the good work that God has done then when people intersect your life and they look at you they say wow do you remember what God did with him man he was an ornery old toot He's so kind now. He smiles. He's got joy. And some of that old sin stuff that he was into was kind of sketchy. He doesn't do that stuff anymore. He's been delivered out of that. Living stones. Those testimonies being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession, the people of God. Jesus' people, like you and me, sinners saved by grace with powerful rock testimonies of God changing and forming us who are to be in Christ Jesus and changing the essence of our identity through his blood. Let that be a challenge for us, that we would be those living stones this week.